Amen. How are we doing? off-centered here. I'm going to just do this a little bit, and I'll feel a little bit better about my life. I'm a little OCD, little secret truths about me. Um, so, anyway, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us. Happy Mother's Day. Happy, uh, like, first week where all the students have all apparently left. Um, so, and uh, even the ones who are here this summer, a lot of them have gone to probably be with mom. So, uh, we're glad you're with us here today. Uh, it is Mother's Day, so we want to celebrate uh, the moms who are here today, and, and we have a little gift for you. If you didn't receive that on the way in, be sure to pick one of those up on the way out. We'd like to bless you with that. Um, but we also, in doing that, I also want to acknowledge that this day is a difficult day for a lot of folks, too. Um, that sometimes gets brushed over a little bit. That you know, it's, a, it's a hard day with a lot of grieving for a lot of folks, for those who've lost mom or who mom is really ill, um, those who have uh, lost children, um, suffered miscarriages, those who have wrestled with infertility, those with strained relations with their mothers or moms with strained relations with their their children. Uh, We also want to let you know that we grieve with you, we acknowledge you, uh, but we do recognize that that mothering is no easy task. And and so we want to honor those those warriors in our midst uh, today. we all have our favorite sources to go to for news, and mine, for me, it's got to be the bee, right? The Babylon Bee. Anybody else read the Babylon Bee? It's not a real news source, but it's pretty awesome. Um, so this article came across my news feed this week. Uh, everything local man feels led to do, he coincidentally really likes. <laughs> right? I'd like to read a little excerpt from this brilliant piece. Um, Don Farmer, age 43, reported Tuesday that he was recently led by God, quote-unquote, towards several things he really likes, and in fact, as a general rule, everything he feels spiritually moved to do, he coincidentally enjoys very much. Quote, I'm always listening for that still, small voice that just so happens to send me to do things I already want to do, said Farmer. Would I like to volunteer for the house building project? Sure. But what can I do if the Spirit is leading me to come alongside Frank in fellowship by going to the game instead? Right? That's into the quote. Do you catch that, right? It's funny, it's funny because it's also like um, very true, right? It really gives a snapshot of a lot of our attitudes towards, uh, towards authority, even our attitudes toward uh, the authority of Christ for us in the church. Um, as long as it's something we want to do, yes, Lord, we're ready, send us, let's do that. But if it's something I feel a little bit uncomfortable about or I don't like doing, then clearly that's not what the Lord wants me to do. If it goes against our personal desires and feelings, then authority, that authority starts to feel overbearing and, and we just push back against that. Um, ultimately, what's really going on inside of us in that is this sinful desire to be our own authority, though. And the last part of Mark chapter 11 highlights for us the authority of Christ. In the midst of an attack on Christ's authority um, by the chief priests and the scribes, we, we get a glimpse at the nature and the extent of his authority. That's what we're going to see today in, in Mark eleven twenty seven through 33. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Mark eleven twenty seven through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, 
by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you, did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for uh, this beautiful day to gather together. Um, Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you help us to to let you and, and to hear you as you search our hearts and expose the areas of sin within us, as you expose the areas of, 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 of our lives where we continue to grapple for control and for authority over our lives when we have no control and we have no authority, regardless of what we acknowledge or not. Lord, you help us to see your authority as the great gift, the great joy that it truly is, to see it as good, to see it as as a a delight to get to follow you, to listen to you, to obey you, to love you more and more each day. Lord, would you soften our hearts to see the truth of the gospel? Would you open our hearts to deeper faith? Lord, have your way with us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So here, here at the end of Mark 11, this, this brewing and growing conflict between the religious leaders of Israel and, and Jesus really begins to kind of come to a head, right? It, it starts here, probably on Tuesday, Wednesday of, of Holy Week, and, and it's going to come to the ultimate climax and end on Good Friday with the crucifixion of Jesus. And we see here the attack on Christ's authority. As Jesus and the ta- uh, his disciples re-enter uh, Jerusalem, they make their way into the temple, they're walking around, there's a crowd gathered, Jesus is teaching and, and, and preaching to the crowd. Uh, it says here that as that's going on, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they, they came to Jesus and they confront him, right? And the confrontation was brought on by what Jesus had done the day before, in the temple. If you remember last week, we looked at this last week as part of the, the text at the first part uh, of chapter 11. Jesus' disciples, they make their way into Jerusalem on, on that morning. Uh, they, they had stayed the night in Bethany. They stayed at the home uh, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, dear friends of Jesus. Lazarus, of course, who Jesus had raised from the dead. And, and they come back into Jerusalem on that morning and, and into the temple and Jesus begins to uh, flip the tables of the money changers to drive out the, the folks who are buying and selling things in the temples. Um, he, he, he flips over the seats of those who, who sold pigeons or doves just for, for sacrifices, trying to make, make a buck off of the religious rituals of the day. And he wouldn't permit anyone to carry any merchandise to and from throughout the temple. We read this in Mark eleven seventeen and 18. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. 
For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. That's the event that preceded and precipitated this event, this confrontation on the next morning, the next day. I mean, you hear the authority that Jesus was speaking with there, the authority that he is taking in the temple, right? My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made my house a den of robbers. And it's clear that as the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they approach Jesus, they are not coming to him with an open, honest question, sincerely seeking an an honest answer from Jesus, that he would reveal truth to them about where his authority comes from. They are coming to attack. They are coming to, to attack his authority before the crowd that he is teaching. Verse 28 says, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? These questions were an attack. They were an attempt to embarrass Jesus in front of the crowd. And we saw earlier in Mark 3, right? Mark chapter 3. The scribes had long before already determined where Jesus' authority came from, right? They said his authority is demonic. It comes from Satan. That's how he's casting out demons. He's possessed by a demon. He's controlled by a demon. He's in league with demons, That's how Jesus does things. They've already passed judgment on where they think his authority comes from. They're not seeking an answer to that question. They they want to expose Jesus. They want to embarrass Jesus. They want to nail, put that last nail in the coffin and have him killed. This is an attack on on Christ and his authority. And it's clear that the, the, the key word here is authority. Authority. That's what the confrontation centers on. And the Greek word translated as authority here really means freedom to act, liberty to act. To have authority is essentially to have the right to act, the right to exercise your will, to to exercise force, to determine, to decide. That's authority. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, the authority of Christ has often been at at the forefront, at the center of what was taking place. Right? We're, we're told throughout this gospel, Jesus taught with authority. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees all referred back uh, to somebody else, the, the authority of someone else. We're quoting Hillel, we're quoting someone else about what they said about something. But Jesus says, I say to you, right? He says, he, he teaches with authority. He's displayed the authority to cast out demons and heal diseases, to, to make the, the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. He's claimed the authority to forgive sins in Mark chapter 2. He's displayed authority over nature, over the wind and the waves as he calms the storm. He's given He has given his authority to others, passing on his authority to his disciples and empowering them by his authority on their own to go out and cast out demons and heal. And now he's rolled into town, into Jerusalem, into the temple, and claimed authority over what's taking place in the temple of God. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, these these three groups here who make up the the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body uh, of Israel that presided over by the high priest, the Sanhedrin, right? They had the authority over all religious matters in Israel, over everything in the temple, right? They had authority uh, even given to them by the Roman Empire over some political issues. And that's the real issue for them. Right? Not, not what 
where Jesus' authority comes from, but just the fact that Jesus' authority is not coming from them. Right? He's doing things apart from their blessing, apart from their permission, apart from their authority. They see themselves as the ultimate authority. And so they come to Jesus on the attack. Who gave you the right to come into our temple and do this? Right? Where does this authority come from? That you can drive out these people selling things that are helping us make a profit here. What gives you the right to teach like you do and to say what you say? They attack Jesus' authority because they reject his authority. They attack it, his authority because they reject his authority. In their minds, what happened the day before in the temple was blasphemy of the highest order. Blasphemy of the highest order. But this has been building for years. This isn't just like a one-off thing that all of a sudden they like went from zero to like 90, right, in, in their rage. For three years, as Jesus has gone about the region teaching and healing, for three years there have been rabbis present, scribes present, Pharisees present. Wherever Jesus has been, they've had conversation after conversation after conversation with Jesus. But never... Never did they come to Jesus to find out the truth from God. Never. Not once. They never came as genuine seekers. Never came seeking the truth. They never came examining their own hearts and their own theology, seeking to lay themselves bare to let Jesus point them in the right direction of how they might have gotten it wrong. At every point, it was always only an attempt to discredit Jesus openly and publicly so that they might have the grounds to kill him. And they come attacking Jesus, attacking his authority, seeking to destroy him. They want Jesus to answer this question with these words. My authority comes from God. They want Jesus to say that because they believe that will be the final Word, the final act they need to display very clearly before the crowd. This man is a blasphemer. Like he needs to be killed. We need to have him executed right now. That's their hard hearted intent. But in the exchange that takes place here, we also get a glimpse of the nature of Christ's authority. Jesus is fully aware of their intentions, he's fully aware of what they're trying to do. And even without a warning from Admiral Akbar, right? It's a trap! (laughs) Star Wars nerds unite, Um, right? Jesus knows that it's a trap. And so he responds with a question of his own, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Answer me. Answer me. He's very straightforward, right? I'm going to give you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. Got one question for you. Here it goes. And then he asks a question that sets a trap of his own for the religious leaders. And more fully explained, this is, this is the more full view of the question that Jesus is asking. Essentially, it's this. The prophetic ministry of John the Baptist is calling the nation to repent and be baptized because there was one coming who was mightier than he. Did that ministry of John come from God? Was God the source of that ministry? Or was it purely a man-made ministry? 
The question of of John's baptism encompasses the whole of John the Baptist's ministry. It's not just about like his baptism technique. It's a question about everything that John had done. His entire ministry, including his preaching of repentance, including his preaching of preparing for the Messiah, including his preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. It includes all of that. After all, very plainly, John the Baptist had said about Jesus in John 3, verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Christ's counter-challenge here is simply this. Was the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist from God or from man? It was either from man or from God. Which one was it? Answer me. He brilliantly turns the tables here on on them and puts them on the hot seat. And and you see them discussing this in the text as the the text continues. But essentially, this is what they're, they're arguing about here. If we say that John's ministry is from God, then we have to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. And we're not doing that. Right? If, if we're going to say that it comes from God, then we have to admit that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. And, and we're not going to do that. But if we say that the ministry of John is from men, well, now they've got a really big problem. Because there's a really big crowd gathered around. And that crowd, all of them, all of them believe that John was a true prophet of God. And so they're fearful. They're terrified of the crowd turning on them if they say his ministry was for man. In some of the parallel accounts, we realize they're terrified to the point that they're worried they might be killed if they say that. You see, John the Baptist and Jesus are a package deal. They're a package deal. You can't take John without Jesus, and you can't can't throw away Jesus without throwing away John. Jesus says this in Luke 7, 28. He says, I tell you, among those born... Of women, none is greater than John. And then it says this in, in, in verses 29 and 30 of that, of that same chapter of Luke. When all the people hear this, and the tax collectors too, they declare God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The religious leaders wanted nothing to do with John, and they certainly wanted, didn't want anything to do with Jesus. But the people, the crowd, they had embraced John the Baptist as a true prophet from God. And they were willing to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, at least at this point during that final week. But the leaders want Jesus gone. They want him gone. And they definitely don't want to affirm John, who affirmed Jesus, right, as the Messiah. They, They have a big problem here. What are they going to do? And Jesus really drops the hammer on them when he says, answer me. Right? I want to hear your answer to this question. He really drives it home. And here's what we see for the, for the Pharisees, for the scribes, for the, the Sanhedrin here. The praise of men. The approval of the crowd. Having favor with the people is everything to them. It's everything to them. It's absolutely everything. It's power. It's prestige. It's privilege. And they desire that, that approval, that favor more than anything else. And so they take the easy way out in their minds in verse 33. And they reply, we do not know. We don't have an answer. The religious leaders of Israel who know the Hebrew scriptures by heart the entire Old Testament 
memorized, who, whose life is to examine the truth and the validity of prophets, we don't know where John the Baptist's ministry comes from. That's their answer. We don't know. They're self-indicted by this. And then comes the condemnation at the end of verse 33. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is Jesus saying, I'm done talking to you. I'm done talking with you. You don't get any more information out of me. We're done with this. Their hearts are completely hardened. They've completely rejected Christ and his authority. And they stand condemned. They stand condemned because the nature of Christ's authority doesn't depend on their acceptance of his authority or their endorsement of his authority. The exchange points to the nature of Christ's authority. His authority is absolute. His authority is ultimate authority. It's divine authority. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's verse 1 of Mark's gospel. That's who he is. He's the eternal word. At the beginning of John chapter 1, who was in the beginning with God and was God. All things were created by him and through him. His authority isn't given by or validated by anyone, not any human. It's his in his essence. It's his death and resurrection at the end of the week that most powerfully display to all of us his absolute authority over all. You can hardly talk about the nature of Christ's authority without also talking about the extent of Christ's authority. And and much of what follows in in Mark chapter 12, as we'll get into in the coming weeks, will display the reality of what theologian Abraham Kuyper once said is as this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's the extent of his authority. It's over everything, everyone, every square inch of the universe, every square inch of human existence. He has authority over all. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Paul says this about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His authority is absolute. His authority extends over everyone and everything, even those who completely reject his authority. He has complete and total authority over them. That means, by default, that his, his authority extends over you. It extends over you. Now, this is where the problem begins for, for a lot of us. 
especially uh, us good Westerners, right, Americans, right? Uh, this is where the problem is. Think about the national anthem that we sing. You go to the sporting event, and we sing the national anthem, and we get to the line, right, the land of the free, and that's where the cheers begin. That's not the end, end, end of the song, though, is it, right? Like, like there's another line, and the home of the brave, but, like, whatever. We don't care about the brave part, uh, not anymore, right? Freedom, that's the part we worship. That's the part that is ultimately good. So that's where the cheers begin. I mean, I'm a, I, I grew up in Kansas City, a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Like if you go to Arrowhead Stadium for a football game for the national anthem, they sing the home of the free, they start to go crazy, and then when they get the, uh, the home of the brave, it's not the brave, it's the home of the Chiefs. Like that's what they've done with the end of the song there. Um, they just want to make that point to any uh, opposing foe who comes into the stadium. Right? We have centered on freedom. That is the, the, the ultimate good, right? Freedom to be an authority to ourselves. Freedom to live however we choose, without restraint, without constraints put upon us. You should be free to live however you want, and I should be free to live however I want. That is what we worship in our culture. But the real problem with our culture is this, in this value, uh, in this is that we value freedom because functionally we believe that, no, that there is no authority, no order, no truth, or moral absolute that we must submit to, other than our own. We are, all of us, even the Christians in the room, shaped by a culture that increasingly believes that nothing has a rightful claim on us, and therefore we are free, each of us, to live as we see fit, however we see fit. Freedom and autonomy Right? The highest good. The highest good in our culture. And freedom is defined in our culture as the absence of any limitations or constraints on us. And this is why we all start to get the shakes, right? When someone even just says the word authority. Uh, right? Like, I don't, we don't like that. Authority is bad. Authority is bad. I should be free. That's why we laugh. But simultaneously, we also see in ourselves that when we, we read that Babylon B excerpt, Right? About God only calling us to do the things we really want to do. Like, that resonates with us a little bit. But, but I want to attempt to show you why this idea of freedom in our culture uh, the, isn't a good thing. And it's, it's not even real. It doesn't even really exist. If freedom is defined by an absence uh, of constraints on my choices, if it's defined by, by there's no limitations upon me, it doesn't work because it's actually impossible. Here's why. What happens when the different freedoms in your life are at war with one another? Like, let's say, hypothetically, I think, maybe I should drop a few pounds before hitting the beach later this summer. But at the same time, I also feel like I really want to eat an entire package of Oreos right now. Right? Those are two freedoms, right, that I might say I have the freedom to do, but... but, but what, those freedoms are kind of at war with one another. Like, I can't be free to do both simultaneously. That, it's not going to work out, right? It's not going to work together. What about when your freedom harms people around you? What about when it hurts them deeply? Right? The reality is you can't have all the freedoms. You never can, because some of them by necessar- necessarily require constraint in another area. If everyone lives by what is right in their own eyes with no constraints whatsoever, how can our relationships flourish? How, how does society function 
Think about it. Even when you think you are really free, right? And living a free life, the reality is that something is controlling you. And this is the deeper truth that we want to ignore. Whatever it is in life, whether it's job or family or the the approval of peers or acceptance, uh, or whether it's like nothing, something is, is driving your life, right? The freedom... And your freedom to choose and live and base your meaning and satisfaction on whatever it is, that thing ultimately controls you. You're not free. You're a slave to that thing. If you say, I don't give my heart to anything. I don't invest in anything. I don't care about my job. I don't care about relationships. I'm I'm just an island unto myself. I don't care. Um, I'm completely apathetic. Well, then you're actually still committed to something, and that's your own independence. And you could be argued that you're, you're definitely controlled by that. You're definitely mastered by that, even enslaved by that, because it forces you to stay uncommitted and apathetic and probably pretty lonely. The late postmodern novelist David Foster Wallace, in a graduation speech, said it like this. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And Wallace goes on to say, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords over our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Now Wallace was writing that and speaking that not as a Christian and maybe not even as as a person who believed in any sort of personal God. He's simply reporting the mere facts of human experience and human nature. And what those facts show us is that no one is free. No one is free. Everyone needs love and meaning and purpose. Everyone pursues some sort of satisfaction in their lives. And so everyone is under the control of something. And the reality is that Jesus Christ in his supreme authority comes not as some overbearing oppressor into your life, but as the one true great liberator. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ emptied himself. 
denied himself. He emptied himself of all glory and humbled himself that he might save us from slavery to sin and lesser gods that would eat us alive. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you never could live. And he died the death that you deserve in your place for your sins. And he rose victorious over the grave, defeating once and for all sin's tyranny over you. And Jesus rose. He rose victorious over Satan's sin and death. He liberates us and and brings a, a real, real freedom. Not a freedom without constraints. Not a freedom without constraints. But as we're reminded in James chapter 1, verse 25, the law of God brings liberty. The law of God actually brings real freedom. Jesus tells us himself that following God's truth will set you free. It will set you free. Free to live the life you were intended and created to live. You know, a fish out of water is not free. Right? We've, we've set the fish free. He's out of the water. He's, he's free to, to walk on the land, do his thing. Well, he's not going to walk. He doesn't have legs. But you know what I'm saying? Like, he's not free. He's going to die because he was created for the water, for the constraints of the water. You and I were created for the constraints of living, living life with Christ, living life under the rule of God, our creator. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites you to follow him. Right? And and he calls you to, to do those things that you were created to do. And that's why his yoke is easy. What he calls you to, you were intended to do. Jesus puts on you the burden of following him, but he's already paid the price for when you fail. When you fail and and fail to honor what he's called you to do, when you fail to obey him, you're forgiven because he's already paid the price. Jesus removes the crushing burden of making your own way of earning your own salvation that you will never be able to live up to. He removes the crushing burden of seeking to find and create your own ultimate meaning and purpose. He removes the burden of of guilt and shame for all of your past failures. He removes the burden uh, burden of having to prove yourself and justify yourself over and over and over and over again. He is the only Lord and Master you will find who will satisfy you? Who will satisfy you? Who accepts you with an unending acceptance? And even when you fail him, he will forgive you. That's why it's such good news. It's good news that Jesus is the absolute authority over all. And that his, his authority extends by, by nature over you and your life no matter whether you recognize it or not. It's good news because Jesus is the only Lord and Master, the only one to live for you, to live for that, that won't exploit you. Who won't exploit you? Because in Jesus, the one true and ultimate authority, God in the flesh, He emptied Himself for you. He emptied Himself for you 
became mortal for you, died for you, nailed to the cross for you. If anyone ever had to give up freedom or gave up their freedom willingly, it was Jesus Christ, right? On the cross for you. And he did so that you might experience the ultimate freedom, freedom, uh, uh, freedom from sin and death itself. By what authority are you living for? By what authority are you carrying out your daily life? My prayer is that the good news of the gospel would move you to come to him, to embrace him. That it, the good news of the gospel would soften your heart to see that he is good. His yoke is easy. His, his burden is, is light. May it, realize, may it move you to realize how much you need the word to search your heart and, and expose the sin in you. May it move you to realize how much you need Christian community, gospel community, to have brothers and sisters who would walk with you and expose the pockets of blindness and sin in your life that you cannot see that they might point you to repentance and faith and let resting in the grace of Jesus. May you see that his authority is good, that it's a blessing, that his yoke is easy, his burden is truly light. As you begin walking in true freedom as you follow Jesus. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, uh, may we be reminded of how Jesus gave up his freedom that we might experience the ultimate freedom from sin and death. May we come in joyful submission, embracing this beautiful freedom that his authority brings into our lives as we take of the bread and the cup, remembering his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for our sins. Believers, you're invited to come and share in this meal as we continue to sing. We, we take of the meal by breaking off a piece of the, tearing off a piece of the bread, dipping it in the cup. There's juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. Wine is in the glasses marked with string. Um, if you're not a believer in Christ, as believers are, are coming forward to share in this meal, this is an opportunity for you to hear the good news of the gospel, to see his authority that extends over your life whether you receive it or not, but to see it as good and to come to him, to take him in faith. There will be pastors and prayer responders out here in the back and out in the gym. We'd love to visit with you, love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. May your hearts, may our hearts be set free to live by his authority and not our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray by your grace more and more you would lead us to see the goodness, the goodness of your constraint upon us. The constraint of your word, the constraint of your grace, the constraint of your truth. Like water for the fish, it's where we find life. It's where we flourish. It's where we are meant to be. Lord, would you help us to see the goodness of your authority over us? Would you help us to see how you emptied yourself and denied your own freedom? to set us free from sin and death. And would that move us to draw nearer to you, to come to you, to take your yoke upon us, see that your burden is light, to see your grace and your mercy. Lord, would you transform us to live by your authority more and more in every way for your glory and for the good 
of all others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.